evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Barry Houlihan, archivist at NUI Galway, and joining us for tonight's post-show talk after the first child are cast members Samuel Levine, Emmett O'Hanlon, Sarah Shine, and we're also joined by conductor Ryan McAdams. Very, very lucky not just to see this stunning performance uh, this evening, but even more so, we'll be joined by Brian McCann's director, uh, conductor, I should say, this evening, and we'll be joined shortly by a few more of the, the cast members once they get a chance to draw a breath. So we'll begin, you can see Great. we'll begin. Okay. So, you have a chance to draw a breath as well. Yeah. Basically, after that I'm all right. spectacular <laughs> uh, performance and production. <laughs> Where to begin, we have an ensemble, we have choir, we have the musicians, we have in the watch, we've done a cadenity. Where to begin? And you were the, the driver of all this this evening. How do you harness all that creative energy? Where do you begin? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. First of all, thank you all so much for coming. Did you um, enjoy, is a weird word with this show, but did, was it effective? Was it? Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, I have the, the, the enormous privilege of having this, this is the second opera I've done with Donovan, and uh, I conducted um, and premiered the second violinist, uh, but pre-pandemic times. Um, and so I've, I've been through their process, and um, it is, it, it's just like, it's like driving a, a, a train of wild lions. Like, it's just enormous, and I mean, and, and one of the, the extraordinary things about it because this is not a, a normal opera, they imagine the show with this extraordinary crash ensemble as part of the visual of the show. That their kinetic, you know, energy is 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 as much a part of the show as, as everything that happens up here. Um, which means that we can kind of release and 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 go bananas um, as we need to, and then we actually get to have really wonderful kind of dramaturgical conversations about how we make sure that we don't draw focus from the audience when, uh, from, from the stage when, when the audience's attention needs to be here, and then how do we take over the narrative visually and musically uh, when we do that. But, um, you know, I, it, it always starts when Donica sends me the score. Enda Walsh has written this libretto in a fever dream, in like a matter of days. And then often with Enda, it, the most extraordinary thing about that partnership is, you know, when Enda writes a play, He'll write it, and then he'll get to the first day of rehearsal, and he'll kind of, it's as if he's never seen it before. He kind of rediscovers it, and then everyone in the room just figures it out in the most incredible, creative, and collaborative way. When Enda sends the libretto to Donica, who's a composer, Donica has to make all these decisions about what this, what this world is, and what these characters are, and what they, what they mean to each other, and, and what's the subtext, and what's the psychology. He has to put that all in the music, before we ever get to day one of, of exploring the show and asking those questions. And I don't know how Donica does it, but somehow what we end up making is this kind of perfect uh, uh, synthesis of their, of their work. Yeah. It's exactly that, synthesis. And, and the beauty of this festival, perhaps even more so than others, is that coming back together with an audience, um, I mean, back here, I mean, the, that, that process, the coming together of all those collaborations from the, the festival itself here with uh, Landmark, with Irish National Opera, could that have worked if, if, if restrictions had not lifted? Could that process have taken a different turn or would the work have been something entirely different? 
Um, that's a really great question, uh, because we actually kind of experienced this already, what it was like, because we built the show last year and, and opened it. We actually rehearsed it in Galway, because Enda had another show here, so we all slept down to Galway, and we came back and we opened it in Dublin. But all kinds of restrictions were still in place. We rehearsed the show with masks on, we rehearsed it socially distanced, um, we had to, the Crash Ensemble, I mean, the joy of this run is that we are all so tight-knit together, but in Dublin, we had to be, you know, meters apart, um, and the music is so intricate, which it meant it, it sometimes felt like trying to drive a 16-wheeler from the back. Um, and so, and, you know, so it was just with all of those restrictions, and worst of all, no open pubs to celebrate the success afterwards. And believe me, after the show, you need a drink or ten. Um, and so to be able to come back to the show, having gone through the enormous kind of emotional and physical uh, uh, difficulties and challenges, um, having put it together and built it the first time, to come back with what feels like a kind of effortlessness, because these restrictions have lifted, and then to put it on stage and play it and, and act it and sing it the way we really imagined we want we wanting it to go, but not quite being able to get there last year. This is this just feels like a victory lap. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I also want to say, when we opened the show on Monday, it was like being on the surface of Mars in this room. <laughs> we were so hot. Um, after the you know the dance that the, that Kaya the young girl does and Crash is going bananas. We call it the sacrificial dance um, in in ourselves. After that, our pianist nearly passed out. I nearly fainted twice, and then I kind of had a dry heave outside when I, before I came on stage for the battle. So doing it tonight was like doing it in the Arctic. So. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Remember one day heat wave. I think thankfully it didn't carry on too much after then. So yeah, you mentioned the second violinist, and of course this is a, a trilogy uh, work with the, um, the the last hotel, followed by the second violinist, and here we are with the first child. They perhaps progressively get darker <laughs> as they go through. None of them are too easy and light on, on theme and topic. Um, but one thing that always strikes me about those works is, uh, one thing you said about the visual narrative that's there, I'm talking about the, the technology and the visuals that are so stunning, yeah. projected here on the backdrop. Um, there's another, that adds another layer of synchronicity between the musicians and the visuals and the, and the performers. Is that another challenge for you as a conductor to blend all those things together? That's a really great question. I think, um, I mean, I don't have to, well, thankfully, we have such an incredible set of stage managers here. And by the way, the woman calling the show tonight jumped in at the last minute because our usual, our usual stage manager got COVID. Anna did a brilliant job. And was not in any way responsible for the technical thing that happened to be in the show. She's a rock star. Um, but thankfully, I don't have to do, and I don't have to coordinate anything with the back. There are a lot of opera productions these days that use projections, and often it almost feels, unless they're done really well, they can feel a bit like, a, you know, a, almost a distraction or an apology for a feeling that the show, something isn't theatrical enough, that it's not gonna, you know, compete with Netflix or whatever. Um, but the way that Enda thinks about technology, in the, in, I think in the, in the in the, the texture of the show, it's the way we use technology in our psychology. It's an incredibly important part of the psychology of these characters. Um, and then when we when we all put it together and we all get to be amplified, so we don't have to worry too much about balances. Um, and then there's all kinds of amazing, I mean, everyone knows, but part of the technology, one of the 
things that Donna kind of invented for this show were these three keyboards, all which are slightly tuned differently to each other, um, and deliberately so. And it creates what we kind of been calling it like a gamelan effect, um, where there's this kind of unholy shimmer coming up from the middle of it, um, which is sometimes uh, sometimes quite like a lullaby, sometimes it's this dark wave, sometimes it's, it's like poison smoke. Um, but I do think all of these things tend to eventually find their way together, but they do, these shows do get darker. Second Violinist was kind of opera dark, it was kind of fun dark. This was genuinely traumatizing to, to put together, especially for me because um, when I first got the score, I had my, my, my first child was two years old, and I live in, in, in Brighton in the UK, and we have these windows that look out onto the ocean. So imagine me learn, studying the score with the waves coming at me and my child running around at my feet. Um, so nice to have a little emotional distance. Hi, welcome guys. Hi. Good job. Hi. <laughs> that you can manifest on stage and bring those characterizations out. And in the midst of that, that heavy story and those dark themes that we talked about here, you, you, each of you are still like having tremendous fun at the same time as well, but can you talk about getting these characters live, getting them up on stage before, as, as we've seen here tonight? Sure. Is everyone your mic on? Yeah. yeah. You okay? Are you mic? I'm mic. Let's put this, this back over here. Am I on? Is this working? Can you hear Emmett? Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, there oh. we go. I'm mic'd also, I think. Uh, yeah, okay, well, good mic. Sorry about that. Uh, you want to go first? No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, so, hi, I'm Emmett, I play Simon. Um, and uh, for me, the experience was, uh, it was, it was interesting because, uh, I don't know about you guys, but the audition for, for this production, uh, I was in America and we did five auditions, I think, for four or five. And then the last one was an interview with the whole team, including uh, <clears throat> including Danica and uh, and uh, Enda on that call, said, well, I see Simon as the only normal one. <laughs> he's the one that the audience is going to relate to, and he's going he's gonna to be the audience reacting to these crazy people around him. Uh, and we all laughed, and then there was a big pause, and he said, so Simon is essentially me. So uh, it, was easy, ah. it, was, it was easy for me, because I just got, I just watched watched Enda work and figured they assignment. Literally my costume, my first costume I wear was, uh, Enda was wearing those clothes the <laughs> second day of rehearsal. So oh my God. that was my experience with Simon. That's um, for me, um, well, I'm delighted to be here and thank you all for coming, guys. Um, I was so happy to, to, to know that I was doing the role of Karen because I, had, I, I knew about the, um, how amazing the first two operas that they had done a part of their trilogy, um, and yeah, I'm not gonna lie, like it's quite a comp it's quite a complicated character of Karen because we have kind of a lot of discussions um, with Enda. The whole process is always so wonderful and very collaborative. Everybody has their say. Ryan knows what's happening with the music. Donica is there as well. Enda, and I think in the first couple of weeks of rehearsals. Ooh, it, it, 
there, there are so many different paths that the story could take, even though the, the libretto and the text was there. There were so many different journeys. And, and end up comment just saying, do you know what? I actually think that at the end of this scene, she feels like this. And then you're like, and he gives you such a palette to play with. And we have all of those stored, I guess. I, that's how I feel the performances. That sometimes when we come out, there's slight differences because every every time it's going to be different. And Ryan is always here to catch us with those, you know. But it is. It's. It's. I think it's a story that people can relate to because everybody at some point in their life has been, you know, through, you know, being bullied or not being like the one who's picked for anything or harassed. And and. I think it's it's very important um, to realise that you don't you don't know where someone's breaking point is, and I think that's what's really sad. Um, and especially towards the end with Karen, I think that we had talked a lot about it. And for me, I wanted it to be that you know she's done this horrible thing, in, in the in at, she's at the end of you know of everything, but you still want to feel something for her because people can relate to her, I think. But also with the news character of Alva. You know, she really has these digs and she has these comments that she makes, but there's something so relatable about her as well. So even though we each had our own person to work with, we could see each other in, in every character. Simon, Gary, everybody knows a guy like Gary. <laughs> he comes in and just um, ruins, you know, not ruins the party. Sorry, Gary, not ruins the party, but just everything explodes party. around him. He is the party. <laughs> so we had, we always had a lot of, um, a lot of joy in like, playing a lot with the rehearsals and yeah. yeah. And as, as, far, as far as the process that Sarah was referring to last, last year when we originally rehearsed uh, this, this um, production, we were very lucky as performers because we had our maestro, we had the composer, and we had the librettist all in the same room the whole time, which never happens. I mean, you're lucky if you get one of those people for the entire rehearsal process. So. When, when Sarah was talking about the collaborative nature of uh, the rehearsal period, when we, there were full hour and a half bits of rehearsal where we'd all just sit in a circle and just talk about how we're feeling after two or three weeks of rehearsing. Do we think the characters have changed? And I mean, getting the musical perspective from Ryan through that whole process, again, unbelievably rare, but I think was, uh, is, is a huge part of why it's so impactful, because everything is related. The orchestra feels what we're doing and because they were there the whole time. And also because everyone is like extremely nice. Yeah. I think it's like the best process like <clears throat> ever yeah. to have to have that kind of joy for in, in the rehearsals for such a heavy story. So. I promise Sam is not typecast. He's not typecast. <laughs> well you don't know me that well. Alright, you <laughs> might be typecast. <laughs> well actually it's funny because everybody else you saw on stage was part of this big artistic collaboration where they had weeks and weeks of intense work to develop these characters. And I only came in um, like a week and a half ago to join this process. So in a way it's perfect because on stage all the other characters are in deep long relationship with each other. You have a marriage and you have this childhood traumatic acquaintance. And Gary's just some dude from Tinder. He just shows up. He doesn't know any of these people. And he, you know, in my first discussion with Enda, he said, Gary's an agent of chaos. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, you know? And Sam, the ties went. Sam's like, yes. Okay. <laughs> so he shows up and he just starts throwing grenades and trying to disrupt what everyone else is doing. And 
artistically, that's exactly what I got to do. I got to show up and say, oh, so how did you guys do it last time? What if we did it this way this time? You know, what if the relationship is like this? What if that happens? And playing the disruptor as an actual newcomer was, uh, was quite fun. We actually found Sam on Tinder. <laughs> it's been su it's been such a oh. sorry. Can you hear me? Is this mic on? Is this on? You might have to press a button. Oh yeah. Hey. Um, I, I just want to say, like, what kind of an extraordinary. I mean, everyone up here is working is so hard at, with every tool they have to bring these characters to life. And I think I, I mean, am I right in thinking this was your and Neve's first contemporary opera? This is pretty cool, or like one of the Yeah, first. like a major one, and, and so fleshed out and so yeah. full with, with many, many ideas. And, and often when singers, uh, when anyone approaches a new work for the first time, you know, there's often not much time to get much beyond getting all the notes right, getting all the rhythms yeah. right, trying to yeah. just put it in shape. Yeah. And the joy of working with Enda is somehow, even though he's got the, all the pieces constructed in his head, he creates a sense in the room that everyone's making it up as we go along. Mm. That every decision everyone makes is theirs to own and yeah. to play with. And that even extends, I think, in some way to the music making. And, 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 uh, and some, that process, I, with, with Enda, can take weeks. And so it's astonishing to me that Sam showed up and literally with stage, restaged his own four days and, and took a whole journey through to get to this point and build these relationships with everybody else. But then to integrate Crash Ensemble um, who I'm so outrageously fortunate to be their, their principal conductor. Um, I mean, they are not just ferocious musicians, as, as I'm sure you all can tell, but they're really theater animals, too. Like, they're really, they're, they're visceral, theatrical people. And, and while I can, in rehearsal, I can talk to them about, you know, this needs to be this articulation, or this balance, or this idea, but if I talk to them in terms of the stagecraft and the dramaturgy, if I try to explain to them, as I said, like, what their role in the totality is, I can see that's when their lights behind their eyes turn on the, the brightest, yeah. and that's when I know we're gonna we're gonna discover new things. And I think the the addictive part of working on an opera with someone like Enda is you get to experience that thing that is the the heart of theater and the most elusive thing to find in opera, which is the possibility for spontaneity, mm -hmm. because everything in theater is usually scripted, uh, frozen. The score itself, because it has a tempo and a pace, tends to lock things in. And theater lives in that new thing that everyone gets to respond to. And, and there's something about this process that allows us to do that and create the show radically new every, every night. Yeah. I think on, on, on that note, uh, it helped the, all of us coming in. It helped that Ryan and Donica and Enda already had this kind of team mentality because they've worked together already. And um, not once from any of them did we hear, well, it's that way because I want it. <laughs> Literally now, and I—it's funny, but every every gig is an opera singer I've done. There's been some way of this is the staging because that's the staging I want you to do. Mm -hmm. Not once, even if it was completely different from what Enda wanted or Donica wanted or Ryan wanted, there was always a okay, cool. Let's try and see where that fits in. So even if you were tricking us, I really appreciate it. <laughs> we can, I think, perhaps have a time for a few minutes, a few questions. Yes. If anyone in the audience has any as well. Um, and while anyone is gathering their thoughts, I might just put one more point here to the, to the panel, is that that synchronicity between the, the performers and the music, but even the stage, is one thing I'm struck tonight about even the set and the stage felt like it was its own instrument. There was percussion and stamping and noise and yeah. sound coming from people. Isn't it great? And it was, I mean, it's, it, like you say, you have so much freedom. You weren't given direct, you know, hard and fast rules, but you still have that freedom to react and 
incorporate all the stage as its own instrument. Yeah, this is this is the, the the whole this whole thing is a living entity. There's no wall here. This all exists in one in one vortex. And so if there's noise up here, it is part of the noise down there and vice versa. And so and, and there's the other part we haven't talked about. Is Elaine Kelly here? Is Elaine Elaine is my assistant. I don't know if she's around. Um, but anyway, she not only is a brilliant assistant, but she's the one who prepared the children's choir. Yeah. And aren't they amazing? Yeah. The kids are over there. They're right there. They're amazing. Um, but you cannot believe how difficult that music is to, for them to learn. They had to sing such dissonant intervals so close together they, that there's nothing for often them in the, in the orchestration of the band for them to hold on to. And they not only sang brilliantly, but were just amazing performers. I mean, just gave much, and, and what's astonishing is I'm doing slightly different things with them every night and they're responding to it and they're living it with everybody else. And I just think they're, they're just awesome. It's okay to ask yeah. what happened yeah. in the show. Yeah. I'm so excited by the inspiration of the Oh, Kaya. Give it up for Kaya. Yeah. Yeah. So the dance, so I got this score, and there was a big chunk in the middle that just said, dance and it was missing. Yeah. <laughs> and then about literally five days before the first rehearsal, Donica sent me the dance. And he was like, oh, it's going to be a couple of pages. Do you remember how long that dance was? <laughs> it's like the absolute living, angry, poisonous heart of the show. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kaya worked with a, an amazing choreographer, Emma, who was here all, all the time, has been here throughout this process. Um, and it, what's astonishing about Kaya is that she's not a professional dancer. Um, they found her on, I think it was like a YouTube video yeah. or something, yeah. oh where she was God. just like, it was like a, it was like a student, she just like decided to make an arty video of her kind of moving through a train station, and she was just such a naturally interesting mover, uh, and they said, I want her, yeah. and wow. she came in and she basically became a professional dancer for this show, but what's, what's so wonderful about that, as you can tell, it, the, the unhinged unprofessionalness of it, yeah. the rawness of it is, is what is so deeply heartbreaking and, 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 and ex kind of emotionally exhausting to, yeah. to witness. Also, she has never acted a day in her life, ever, which wow. makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> she's incredible. Yeah. She she's it was such an effective way to close out the show as well, especially after the, oh. the, you know, the immersion of the music yeah. uh, and the singing all evening, and then there was silence, all just her dancing. Her. Oh. Um, it, it was such, it was stunning, yeah. it was absolutely stunning yeah. way to finish out. We all feel feel exactly the same way as you are at that moment. When all yes. you hear is Kaya's body moving and everything. Oh, God. It's yeah. Anybody terrible. else? Anyone else in the audience? I see your hand up here, uh, gentleman here. Hi there. So I have a thought question. At first, when, when the show ended, I was a little, um, I felt a little confused. And then I realized my confusion was because I was expecting, I, I mean, maybe to be stolen. Murder, 
Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you, you folks how you felt about it. It seemed like a, a, a non-traditional turn in your opera not to have that big moment. I mean, there were other, many other moments, but not that like plot moment that I guess mm -hmm. one comes to expect in traditional opera. Yeah. I wanted to ask you how you felt about it. You're the one that does it. I think, um, yeah, I think that Endel, I think uh, Endel loves, you know, we'll do this and we'll feel like that that's the ending or that's the kind of crux of it, but actually over here is what we should be looking at. Or like over here is what's going to happen or later on. And I think, yes, it is really obvious or, you know, standard opera to somebody, you know, stabs the, the person and it's like the ending of what it is. But exactly, it isn't. It's that we all make decisions in our life and you live with those consequences. And of course, there's like a mythic kind of aspect about this show, meaning that Karen, this character now, has, has finally, I guess, found relief from her pain by taking something from this person who's hurt her. And so when she is going to like forever live in this horrible cycle where everything just repeats and repeats over in this mythical aspect of it, there's the shock, but there's also this resignation of like, I knew I was going to be here because I knew that from being a child and all the hurt that I've always carried, finally the hurt is gone and now I'm going to like live with that consequence. So I think for us it was a really, we spoke about that, like how is the show going to end? Like what way are we going to, to do it? And, and yeah, just the idea that it's just a cycle that everyone just, and everyone gets mixed up and, and you're just caught in, in this feeling of, of, or you're drowning, basically, in this feeling of, of like, I don't know, yeah. relentlessness and infinity. What, what, is, what is Enda use as the metaphor for the beginning? I mean, the, the idea is the opera starts and you kind of think it's going to be... A, yeah, like a, like a romantic comedy, kind of. A yeah. weird romantic comedy, and there's these two, and there's a mar they're married or not. And then it very, very suddenly takes a weird yeah. turn. Yeah, Enda was very clear, we are going to lie to the audience. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> about what this is. At the beginning, I will say from a musical perspective, um, and you're absolutely right, there is not a, a pinnacle, dramatic, climactic moment where this baby gets sucked into the waves, because on some level it's happening all the time through the show. Yeah, that moment yeah. is happening from the beginning of the, of the show through the end, because we are living this woman's full life in the three, the three versions of her in, in a cycle. And the musical depiction of that is, is the waves. There is not a bar of this score where something is not swelling and decaying. The waves are constant, and they start from the beginning, and when, when we get, I mean, you say nothing really big happened, but actually this aria that Sarah sings at the end, is one of the longest and hardest and most exhausting uh, things I've ever seen written for a singer, and Sarah is outrageous in it. Um, yes. And what I, what I love about the music is that it doesn't just reach a, a high note or, or a, a climactic statement. There's just this extended sequence where she is up in the stratosphere and the, and the orchestra is just battering her with waves of different size and different duration, as if now she's just like in a spin cycle, you know, for the rest of her life. And this is the moment that will just, will, will, will root her to this. It's, it's, it's an astonishing thing musically. And it's very difficult to do because, you, as you heard, a lot of the music is very rhythmic. It's very interlocking. And they have to keep that groove really steady while individually all of them are swelling and decaying and wait, making these bigger and smaller waves. So I would also say, just as a fan of opera as an art form, that while 
opera can be a, a great number of different things. So while many operas do revolve around this one huge event, uh, climactic stabbing or something, um, there's a lot of precedent for this kind of living in the aftermath as the piece. Like um, Billy Budd is one great example where it's this man trying to process the thing that he's seen. Um, and Berlioz, his Le Troyen is like, the war is already over. Achilles is already dead, and people are just trying to make peace with it. Or all the Orfeo, the Orpheus operas, where it's like, well, my wife is gone, what am I going to do? There's, a, there's a, great, um, a great diversity of dramatic treatments in opera. And this opera is very aware of that. It's one of the things I love. Like the idea of having a dance in the middle of it has thousands of examples in the art form. I mean, that's such an, an in the wash thing as well. Another arts festival production was Arlington a few years ago. People saw that. You had three acts, and the second, I was reading the script afterwards, and the second act was Act Two, A Dance. Uh, yeah. That was a 20 minute dance piece. Sounds about and, right. And, and, yeah. and, and, and the, the same script, choreographer, too. Yeah, yeah same name, uh, Martin, yeah. of course, yeah. Um, so you're right, it's, it's a reminder, it's in the wash's world, and we live in it. <laughs> uh, there's one, perhaps time just for one very last question there. Yeah, thanks. Um, for those of you who didn't hear the question, the question is, um, is whether there's something new in this score in Donica's music um, that is, that is uh, maybe it's the, said the addition of children or something that, I will say that um, Donica's written three and a half operas. Um, he wrote the, the Last Hotel and the Second Violinist and the First Child, and he wrote a court of oratorio called The Hunger. And all of these four pieces are extraordinary pieces. Um, they, they become less and less instrumentally based and more and more vocally based over time as Donegan has become more sophisticated in, um, in the way he thinks about how the voice drives the drama. And I think one of the things that when Enda and Donegan first got together to, to work, I think they were quite tentative at the beginning. They wanted to stay out of each other's way a little bit. Donegan didn't want to musicalize and therefore take away the effectiveness of Enda's stagecraft. And Enda didn't, was still trying to figure out how music lived in his world. And then the second violinist was very much, a, it often was an opera and then also occasionally a play with a soundtrack. You know, and they kind of alternated between the two. For me, this is a full operatic score. The vocal writing drives the drama from the beginning. The vocal writing is the heart of the, of the psychology and the emotion of this piece. And, and Donica wrote it so quickly and, but he wrote it with the full experience of the three shows that came before it. Um, there is, the orchestra, the band often stays much more out of the way of the stage that I've seen in the way it accompanies, but also it trusts the voice. There are, there are aria after aria in this opera where there are only a, maybe a handful in the second violinist because Donica has just grown incredibly confident in himself to write vocal lines that will tell the, the psychological and emotional story. Um, so yes, I do think that this is, I think this is his best score. I mean, a conductor shouldn't say what his favorites are, but I think this is the most integrated, the most operatic, and the most, um, most uh, musically successful um, of all of them, although I would conduct any of them in a heartbeat. Wake me up at two o'clock in the morning, I will come and, and do it because I love Donica's music. By the way, if you liked this music, 
and want to hear a completely different universe, but nothing, but even equally masterful, please do yourself a favor and go find a piece that Donica wrote, released last year, called Tessalatum. For, it's written for viola, for viol de gamba and cello, but each, both of those players layering 16 versions of themselves on top of each other. It is one of the great masterpieces of the 21st century. Um, so I encourage you all to go find Tessalatum by Donica Dedehi. You will uh, become obsessed with it. <laughs>